want to greet you this morning in Jesus' name, the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, the one who offered himself a sacrifice, and the one who washes us with the washing of the water by the word, that he, because he wants to present us a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He wants us to be holy and without blemish. It was a blessing for me to be here to listen to the devotional and the teaching in Sunday school. Sometimes uh, you just think that God has these things orchestrated because of some of the comments that are made in the devotional in the Sunday school. And um, perhaps you'll make some of these connections as I go through the sermon this morning. One of the passages, well, the passage that I want to open the sermon with this morning is a passage out of 1 Peter. And I think it reflects well, or let's uh, say blends well with Shane's devotion this morning. Thank you, Shane, for, for um, sharing that with us. The passage in 1 Peter, blessed be God. And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptation. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found on the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, though now ye see him not yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. A few things here in this passage that kind of tie both the devotional and uh, the sermon together, and that is that he has given us a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that it's because of that resurrection that we can have hope beyond this life. If that resurrection is in fact a myth, then we have no hope. We have no reason to live. And we are kept by the power of God. But it talks about how that our faith is tried sometimes. But it is for the purpose of producing in us a faith that is clearer and purer than it was before. And it also speaks of believing things that we don't see. So um, hopefully I can pull some of those things together. You will make some of those connections in your mind as we go through the sermon. So I want to... um, begin with Acts chapter 1. The last time I preached, I had kind of given you a background to the book of Acts, 
perhaps in a historical and a political uh, background. Um, Paul writes in the book of Galatians that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. So when the time was right, God sent forth his son. And I want to also encourage you to think of it this way, that the birth of the church was also in the fullness of time, that when the time was right. And so if um, you could think a little bit about that and how we had um, talked about some of the kingdoms that had been in the world and were in the world at that time and how that the prophets had promised that in the times of those kings that there would be a kingdom grow that will never be destroyed and this kingdom will never be given to another. And this is in reference to the kingdom of God, the church that was to be born in the time of those kings. That kingdom being the Roman kingdom. And it was, as you know from your historical perspective in the, that you hopefully have, is that the Romans were in power um, over what was the known world when the church was born. Gives us a setting of the book of Acts and I had uh, told you that perhaps this Theophilus is referring to you as you are a lover of God. A former treatise, Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the time in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him, out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of the names together were about a hundred and twenty. Men and brethren, 
This scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost spake by the mouth of David, spake concerning Judas, which was to guide them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, a kaldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore of these men, which have company with us all the time, that, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until that same day that he was taken from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection? And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whither of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." So Luke is talking about, uh, in verse 1, he's talking about the gospel that he had written, and basically he's just continuing a, um, a record of, he says, it's a continuation. First he had written a treatise about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the time that he was uh, taken. So this account, of Acts picks up where the gospel account leaves off. The last chapter of Luke speaks of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and how Jesus had revealed himself to them. And when they finally understood who he was, he disappears from their sight. And they go back to Jerusalem and they find the 11 disciples. And while they are telling them of their experience, Jesus shows up. But anyway, the gospel, of, the gospel of Luke closes with that passage. And then he picks up right here in Luke chapter 1. I mean, in Acts chapter 1. All right. It says, until the day that he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandment unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I would like to spend a little bit of time here with this, with this uh, idea here in verse 3, that he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. There was a brother asked me recently, he said, he would like to hear some sermons on Christian apologetics. Now, I don't know if I'm qualified to preach those sermons or not, but I do have some things that I'd like for us to think about here. I don't know if I want to make a series of sermons on apologetics or not, so perhaps this is at least some things to think about. Now, when we speak of apologetics, it, it's not talking about apologizing 
for Christianity, when we're speaking of Christian apologetics, the idea is, is that an, apo- an apology or is based on the Greek word an apologia, an answer. You know what it's about. You can answer a question that is given to you. So this idea here of many infallible proofs, it could also be translated as a sure sign or convincing evidence. Strong's defines this term as a token or a as defining a fact that is a criterion of certainty. And so in my own words, the way I would describe Strong's definition is this that is it's something that meets the criteria of being certain. So Jesus showing himself alive after his passion, after his death, was so evident it met the criteria of being certain. Paul also writes of some of the hundreds of people who saw Jesus after his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. After that, he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he was seen of Cephas, that's referring to Peter, and then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So Paul writes that there were hundreds of people. If you doubt Paul's word is the implication here, you can go ask these many hundreds of people. If they saw Jesus, they were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And Paul says that he was as well when he met Jesus on the Damascus road. He saw Jesus glorified, resurrected. So there was many infallible proofs. Now many skeptics define faith as believing what is not credible. Like the queen in Alice in Wonderland, when Alice says that one can't believe impossible things, the queen responds and says, when I was younger, I did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. That's what a skeptic portrays or caricatures faith to be. But faith is believing what is real. It is staking your life's purpose and value on that reality, and then it is living that reality. So faith is not just, faith is not at all, let me say, believing something that isn't real. Faith is believing, it is accepting reality and living by that reality. That is faith. And so Luke is saying that the evidence of Jesus being alive after his death is clear and convincing. And so when you say that you have faith that Jesus rose from the dead, that means that you believe in that fact and you live your life in regard to that. 
he showed himself alive. So, granted, Luke is convinced, but why should we be? Is Luke's testimony reliable? And I don't want to go deep into a defense of the Bible as valid and reliable. I'd refer you back to Matt Peachy's teaching at Bible school. I thought that was very well spoken. I want to affirm what was taught, and I encourage you, if you have questions about the reliability of Scripture, to listen to that teaching again. I'm not planning to get into that this morning. I just want us to think about how that Luke's testimony is reliable, that God has kept that testimony and it is given to us as being reliable. And we we place our faith in that because it is fact. There's other biblical writers that write of Jesus' resurrection as well. Matthew, Mark, John, and Peter, and Paul. And they are all reliable. As we have this testimony of the biblical writers, and we also have the testimony of both Jewish and Roman historians, but generally they write of Jesus' resurrection as being secondhand. They don't espouse it. They just say things like, it is said of him that he rose from the dead, and so on. I don't know that there are any non-Christians of the time who would actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It seems to me that anyone who believes that Jesus rose from the dead as true would have to accept the rest of the story as true and so would be converted to Christianity. So we have the testimony of Scripture. We have the testimony, the secondhand testimony, whatever that's worth, of the Jewish and the Roman historians. But there's another evidence uh, that is pretty striking, and that is the evidence of the change in the disciples from the shrinking cowards that they were at the time of the crucifixion. The boldest of them, Peter himself, denied him. He was the boldest. He went with Jesus the furthest. And when he was in the clutch, he didn't come through. And he denied our Savior. He denied his Lord. But after the resurrection, after they understood what was going on, they became bold preachers of the resurrected Christ. The transformation of the disciples bears witness to the truth of the claim of the resurrection. And as valuable as those things may be, I'm convinced that a better testimony yet is that of the transformation of a sinner into a saint that when there is the one who is buried with him in baptism and who rises again to walk in newness of life, that that newness of life bears testimony to the resurrection in a way that no other fact perhaps can. And perhaps even a greater testimony than that is the evidence of a Christian whose life for years has reflected the mind of Christ in temptation, in physical suffering, 
in opposition by friends and family, or by persecution of government. This person endures suffering with a hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. The passage in 1 Peter, He has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the person who has that living hope bears witness to the resurrection of Jesus. You sometimes wish for a way to get something into someone's head and just reprogram them. Really, it's good you can't. If you are confronted or you have friends or co-workers perhaps or relations who doubt these things and who cannot accept the truth of the resurrection of Christ, you wish that you could just perhaps tinker with the connections in their minds. But it's good you can't because, you know, if you could do that to them, they could likely do it to you and that would just be a whole other issue. But how do you convince someone of the truth of the resurrection? That is a deep and a valid question. I don't have the answers. But I suspect that the acceptance of that truth is going to cost the skeptic too much. And so he avoids the question. To accept the resurrection, you have to accept that there is a power greater than any naturalistic or humanistic explanation. You have to accept that there is a supernatural power that can override the natural order of things. See, when we believe in the, or we accept the laws of the natural world, and so if that is all that there is, then the, then the resurrection is impossible. But if the one who created the world can also override the natural world, in other words, he can raise up Jesus from the dead, then this is possible. But if there, if you can accept that there is a supernatural power, then you, can, you must also accept that the resurrection is possible. And then that's going to demand some things of you. And so a person will deny that. To accept that there is a supernatural power is to accept that man is not the highest authority. It means that we as people are answerable to a higher power. To accept that is to accept future judgment. To accept it is to accept reward and punishment. And so you can easily see why this would be resisted. Let me, let me give you just a few more things to think about. There's something about that most valuable gift, the gift of choice that enters into this. And that is when you're confronted with infallible proofs, when you're confronted with convincing evidence 
The choice is still yours whether or not you will accept it. I recently read a story written by Albert Spalding. Many of you recognize the Spalding name. He was an early professional baseball player. Now, this is, I'm sure you weren't expecting a baseball history lesson here this morning, but just bear with me. I want to make a point. He was an early, this Albert Spalding was an early professional baseball player for the Boston Red Stockings. And later he was the president of the Chicago White Stockings. Apparently the stock, uh, stockings had a lot to do with baseball, I guess. He was one of the first baseball players to wear a glove. Before that, they would just catch the ball with their bare hands. And he and his brother James, Albert Spalding and his brother James, founded the Spalding Sporting Goods Company way back in 1876. And he writes how that in 1877, there was a controversy about curveball pitches. Distinguished scientists openly declared that the curveball was a myth. There was no way that a person could throw a ball in a curve. Sure, the wind may cause it to curve and so on, but a pitcher couldn't intentionally or consistently throw a curve. Now, there was a, a colonel by the name of J.B. Joyce, and he was one of the high-ups in the Cincinnati Red Stockings ball team. All right, now we talked about the Chicago White Stockings, and we talked about the Boston Red Stockings. Now, here's another stockings team, the Cincinnati Red Stockings. All right. It was absurd, he claimed, to say that any person could throw a ball in anything other than in a straight line. So to end this controversy, once for all, there was a test set up. I'll just demonstrate this test. No, I'm not going to throw a curveball. So they set up three posts. The um, right side of this post lined up with the left side of this post and the left side of this post. And then they built a, a six-foot-high bore wall from here, left side of this, right side of this, left, left side of this. Yeah? All right. So that was, that was the test setup. And um, they got one of the prominent pitchers of the day to stand on this side of this fence. And he threw a ball from here. Remember, this fence was this high. He, he threw a ball from here, around the right side of this, and across the left side of that. He cleared this by a couple inches and that by six inches. So there it was, right? Well, the old Colonel Joyce saw the test successfully, successfully performed, but he would not. Be convinced. He still claimed that the idea that you could throw a ball on a curve was not to be done. When confronted with infallible proofs, the ability to accept or reject the evidence was still his. Okay? There's something of faith 
being a gift. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school class a little bit. Jesus in Matthew 13. Answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them the prophecy is fulfilled, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And this is what we were talking about this morning in Sunday school, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their hearts, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Maybe you could think of it this way, that an unconverted person's heart is doubly padlocked against the truth. And one of those padlocks is pride. And the other padlock is falsehood. The first key that opens a person's mind to the truth is humility. It unlocks that padlock of pride. Old Colonel Joyce was too proud to change his mind when he saw the evidence. He was too proud to change his mind when confronted with the truth. It's no small wonder that the promise of receiving the kingdom of heaven is reserved for the lowly in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is the first beatitude. And the second key that unlocks that second Padlock is the key of honesty. To be able to honestly deal with the truth that you are confronted with. In Luke 8, Jesus gives us the parable of the sower. And in that, he talks about how the ground in which the truth grows is honest. But that on the good ground are they, which in a good and honest heart, having heard the word, Keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Infallible proofs can be rejected. And in fact, they will be by all those except the humble and honest. So if you have a friend and the one you're talking with rejects the truth, perhaps the place to start is to pray that God would humble them and give them a desire for the truth. You can't change their mind. That's between them and God. So that's my comments on the resurrection being an infallible proof, and why, even though it is fact that so many people reject it. But this fact of the resurrection is vital to our study, it is vital to the gospel, it is vital to our Christian faith, Without the resurrection, our faith is vain. It is pointless and invalid. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, your faith is vain and ye are yet in your sins. 
Leslie Newbigin, who I enjoy reading sometimes, was once asked whether he's a pessimist or an optimist, and he responded that he is neither. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. What he is saying is that pessimism and optimism are ways of looking at the world. We're familiar with that. But he said the Christian's way of looking at the world is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It changes everything about the world around us. It changes, it entirely changes the way we look at life. Everything changes when we have witnessed the power of the resurrection. And so um, I would like to go down now to verse 7 and 8. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the other, uttermost part of the world. To be a witness of the resurrection of Christ is a central theme of the Christian's life. It is the central theme I'm proposing of the book of Acts. But the disciples were still unaware of all of this. They, they still... Uh, thought that somehow Jesus was going to be a Messiah that restores the kingdom of Israel. Even after walking with Jesus for three years, of hearing his teaching over and over again, of seeing him die, and of having witnessed his resurrection, they still thought that the kingdom of God was going to be centered around the people of Israel. And Jesus' response to them was, I'm not going to tell you exactly how, and when everything that God has planned will come to pass. And at first glance, it almost seems that Jesus is giving up on them, ever understanding his mission. But I don't think that's it. I think that it's the facts about who Jesus was had to be revealed by the Spirit of God. Jesus had told Nicodemus this at the beginning of his, of his ministry. Jesus had said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus' description of being born again is having the Spirit of God come into a person. And then he can see the kingdom of God. So the person who does not have the understanding that is given by the Spirit of God cannot understand the entirety of, of the mission of Christ. And so the Spirit here was not yet given, so they could not yet know, at least not experience personally, what Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection was all about. But after that, the Spirit come up, comes upon you, then you will receive power. And so this is not a human power, but a power that is of divine origin and he says you will be witnesses unto me beginning at Jerusalem in Judea in Samaria and to the ends of the earth and these last words of our Lord here in uh, verse 8 form the outline of the book of Acts that they will be witnesses in beginning at Jerusalem and then in Judea in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth but I'd like for you to look at this word witness. This is 
this word is translated from a Greek word that is spelled like this. I guess that's pronounced martus. I'm not sure. It's close enough for our purposes this morning. But a witness is a person who has personal knowledge of something. A witness is one who gives evidence, one who can attest to a fact. In our court system today, if you have second-hand knowledge of something, your witness doesn't count. I don't know if you remember, just not too long ago, there was somebody who uh, was in, in this uh, hullabaloo about January 6th and so on, and they appeared before Congress, and they said that someone told me that Trump said this. Well, they should have been laughed out of court. They would have been laughed out of court. They were kind of heard in Congress, not very seriously. But if this would have happened in court case, it would have been the testimony is invalid. Okay? A witness is someone who has a first-hand knowledge of. A witness is someone who can attest, who can speak, who can speak to having first-hand knowledge. So Jesus is telling them that since they had seen since they had personal knowledge of that now they will testify to what they had seen. To faithfully testify to the truth of Christ is going to cost them. And we see this conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world here in the book of Acts. And we see the conflict between the, the apostles preaching the resurrection of Christ and the Jewish authorities con confronting them on religious terms and the Roman overlords confronting them on political terms. Every step that the apostles took was purchased at great cost. Paul rehearses some of the things that it cost him. He talks about how that he was in prisons more frequent. He, was in, he had stripes above measure. He talks about how he was beaten of the Jews and of the Romans and he was in perils of waters and robbers and, and of his own countrymen, in, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in faithfulness, in washings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. This is Paul's testimony of what being a faithful witness cost him, of having had personal knowledge and of expressing that knowledge to those who are asking, and demanding of him. This is what it cost him. All the, all the other apostles could have told similar stories. In fact, every one of the apostles but John was killed. And he was exiled. They had personal knowledge of the truth. They had experienced it. They were living it. And they weren't backing down for anybody. They weren't changing their story and... It didn't matter come what may. They were faithful to the knowledge that they had been given. They were faithful to what they knew about the resurrected Christ. Now the Greek word that is translated witness here, this word right here is where we get our word martyr from. And it's not hard to make the connection between being a faithful witness and martyrdom. So beginning 
where they were in Jerusalem, they were going to be carrying out the gospel unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And so then with these words, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And the angel's promise was that as you saw him go, so you will see him come. It reminds us of Paul's words in First Thessalonians about how that uh, the Lord Himself from heaven, the Lord Himself should ascend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain together shall be caught up with them, together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It reminds us of the words of John the Revelator, where. Jesus says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. Then we have Luke's account of Judas Iscariot's suicide in verses 15 and following. And um, I had a question for you, and I don't know what you, what you make out of this, but we read how he purchased his field and then he fell headlong and he apparently he burst open and his guts came out. Like it's pretty graphic. But Matthew's account says that when Judas betrayed Jesus and when he saw that Jesus was going to be killed, he brought again the 30 pieces of silver that he had gotten from the chief priests for his uh, betrayal of Christ. And he threw it on the temple floor, I guess, and he said, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And it says he departed and went out and hanged himself. I don't know exactly how to square those two, except I suggest that Matthew kind of used a kinder, gentler language, more euphemistic. But Luke's account is Luke being a doctor was more concerned with the details. So I, I don't know if that's what's happening here or not. Then I have a few comments that I'd like to make here on the end of the chapter where they um, ordain Matthias to uh, replace Judas who had killed himself. Now, Peter based the need to replace Judas on two different psalms. In verse 20, he's citing two different psalms. Let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein. That comes out of Psalm 69, verse 25. Let their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents. And then the last part of that verse comes out of Psalm 109, verse 8. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Now these Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, are both what is sometimes labeled as an imprecatory Psalms. It is where David Praise down destruction and the most miserable existence and ultimate destruction on his enemies. It's enough to make your hair stand on end what he prays that God would do to his enemies. Guess I won't read that. You can read that this afternoon. But Peter applies these psalms to Judas. This was the one who had company with them and who had personal experience. And he rejected all of it. 
and he was the enemy of the cross of Christ. And so they were going to ordain one to take his place. And this man, it says, that he had to be one who had personal experience with the Lord from the time that John had baptized Jesus until the time of his ascension. So there were the, the 12 apostles, but it wasn't only them who had an, an intimate and continuous knowledge of what Jesus' life and ministry consisted of. Verse 22, it says that, or verse 21, Wherefore of those men which had accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out, beginning at John's baptism from the time he was taken up. And so they needed another who was a witness to the resurrection to take Judas's place. The apostles were all eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And the church, Paul writes, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So the church is built on those who had a personal eyewitness experience with the resurrected Christ. And then at the end of the chapter, there's this um, precedent for our uh, tradition of using a lot to ordain elders. They appointed two. They only needed one. So they used the lot to determine which one to ordain. They recognized, in verse 24, they recognized both God's omniscience and God's sovereignty in that simple but profound prayer. Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen. God's omniscience. He knows the hearts of men. Show which one you have chosen is God's sovereignty. I wish we knew more about Matthias. But as far as I know, this passage is the only place where we read of him. And even though he is obscured in history, to be numbered with those who have been witness to the resurrection is the highest of honors. And that is a, an honor that can be bestowed on us. Our names may never be writ large on the story of the history of the world. We may die in obscurity. But when our lives are transformed by the power of God, when the old man, our sinful nature, is crucified, and we are raised together with him to walk in newness of life, it is then that we are witnessed together with the apostles of old of the resurrection of Christ. Let's kneel for prayer.